Randy, do you remember back in the day in your science lesson, lighting Bunsen burners in the lab, turning the gas on so the other students freaked out at the smell and sitting on those high wooden benches and throwing paper planes at your mates? Oh, Gilly, that sounds like a very whimsical interpretation of a science lesson from an English school. I'm from New York and I went to high school where the BC boys kind of sort of went. So science was more like setting fire to donuts and putting them out with fire hydrants. <laughs> I can totally imagine you doing that. <laughs> well, one thing both our classes probably had in common was writing hypotheses. And honestly, I did love that part. Writing up conclusions, not so much. I mean, the conclusion was that the experiment didn't work, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, but today we're going to talk to Mark Sirekas. He's the VP of product at Zoe, and we're going to talk to him about hypotheses and testing. So let's hear his thoughts and what his science lessons taught him. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you very much for having me. So for the few people who don't already know you, can you just give us a quick introduction to yourself? What are you doing these days and how did you get into product in the first place? Absolutely. So I am the VP of product at Zoe and Zoe is a company that focuses on being the most scientifically advanced and personalized nutrition program where we help you understand how food affects your body so you can eat for your best health. And I also advise startups, uh, specifically from pre-product market fit all the way to, to scale. And how I got into product is by accident, because I started building stuff uh, online and learned the hard way that it's uh, very difficult to actually create something that is valuable to people. And uh, I stumbled into product management as a more methodical way of approaching that and never looked back. Okay. And speaking of methodology, this is something we want to talk to you about today. You spend a lot of time working with your teams on coming up with good hypotheses and using them as part of the process. But let's start at the beginning. When do you actually use a hypothesis? Is it at the vision level, at the strategy level, at the quarterly plan? Is it an epic, at story? I mean, where does it start? If, uh, if we're being liberal with the term, I think everything is a hypothesis. Uh, so a startup is a hypothesis and a bet around what the future will look like. Uh, your vision as a company is a bet of how the future will look like after you've succeeded in altering it. But in more product management terms and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, I think we're focusing more on how we can augment the customer experience. And so uh, focused more on the if this than that type of hypotheses where we have one variable uh, and one customer problem that we're trying to solve. And, you know, uh, by trying different things, we're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. So I think it's more common to use hypotheses in the quarterly to, all the way down to the story level. So when you're planning your regular work, how much of the hypothesis kind of fits into that that planning phase? Like, 
is everything you know every sort of um piece of work that you're doing have a hypothesis attached to it or do, you know does some have a hypothesis depending on sort of how confident you are or uh, like how much does the hypothesis feature in the the day-to-day planning of of work I think, I mean, fundamentally, there are problems that, you know, are pretty clear cut, right? Like they need to be done for business as usual. Like, uh, you know, you have to do an integration for tax purposes, right? So I think those kinds of things just are normal business and they obviously don't have uh, hypotheses attached to them. But when it comes to like how we set goals and we use OKRs for, for that purpose, I think everything has a hypothesis attached to it. Um, and that hypothesis is very much focused on the customer problem. So that's how we kind of how we structure both our objectives and our key results. And on that planning level, uh, I would say that is the case. Uh, similarly, when we have you know features as well, we always have uh, templated tickets where effectively the hypothesis is part of it, and and also the metrics and the countermetrics and a lot of other uh, relevant stuff. Yeah. Okay, great. So you have um, your. OKRs, and then your hypotheses are connected to the the different OKRs that you're looking to achieve. Correct. So the OKRs for us, uh, most of the time, an objective would be a validated customer problem. And then the the hypothesis we're making is more focused on the solution, whether the solution will deliver the antidote almost to the customer problem that we see or the opportunity that we perceive exists and, and customers uh, have validated with us already. Yeah. So this sounds like if we were using Teresa Torres's approach of the opportunity solutions tree, you've got your goals and your objectives. And directly under that is your hypotheses of how you're going to uh, reach those objectives. Um, I think that makes sense. Uh, it, it, often, if, often it would look like that, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that the structure changes. So you could have a hypothesis on a feature level or you could have it on, a, on an idea level or you know, on, a, on a problem level even, right? And I think they, they fall into a different process to validate and, uh, and approach them. So what does a good hypothesis look like? What does it include? You know, um, Zoe is a, is a scientific company and we work a lot with science uh, in our core. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually uh, wear my product management hat and focus on the non-scientific part for a second, um, even though that might not be obvious. I think a great hypothesis fundamentally is a hypothesis whose outcome delivers a clear action for the product team. And that action delivers a better customer experience. And I think um, what tends to happen very often is that we focus instead on like business metrics or, you know, solutions that we're trying to validate and are already biased with and forget about the customer problem and the experience such that, you know, um, in the end of the day, you get the outcome of a hypothesis that you have and you're not really sure what to do with it. Um, and so to give an example of, of something that is very relevant to that, at Zoe, we recently had to change uh, the first part of the of the product, which is the the quiz flow. We have a quiz, you know, where we ask relevant uh, health questions, and our hypothesis was not. We wanted to optimize that part, and our hypothesis was not around fundamentally the conversion optimization or anything like that, but fundamentally around the learnings and the value that the customers are are getting uh, in the very first part of the quiz, and so. Rather than looking at the drop-off points only and optimizing for, you know, uh, for conversion optimization, what we aimed to do was hypothesize whether customers can start seeing the value assessed by whether their knowledge increased after the quiz in the very beginning, which is effectively to connect 
the the value of the product uh, that we that users have when they use it to the very beginning. And so, I guess a great hypothesis is actionable, and it helps you fall in love with the problem uh, and focus on the customers. I think that's uh, what I would have in, in my mind as a great hypothesis. That's great. Okay, so how do you work with people who maybe their first t- take on a hypothesis? isn't quite so strong. What kind of advice do you give them to ensure that they're formulating better hypotheses? So I think I think what we do very much so uh, at Zoe, and it's the only part that I actually focus on uh, in working really closely with, with the product management team, is to go and understand really how to approach a problem. So before we even formulate hypotheses, any hypothesis is fair game, right? You can have a hunch, you, can have, you might have observed something, you might have heard something in a customer interview, but when you want to propose something, uh, presumably to dedicate time to it, uh, there's a whole process that we go around validation and getting more and more data so that the hypothesis becomes both obvious to everyone, right? So we have a, a common amount of understanding and, and data, and so it becomes uh, obvious to everyone. And uh, secondarily, you know, uh, it's, it's accepted by, by the team as a whole. Let me just expand on that a little bit further. So each team, though, might have a hypothesis. How do you make sure that the different hypotheses that are being worked on, the different team hypotheses, uh, are working together rather than at cross purposes? So I think that has to do a lot more with our planning rather than the hypothesis itself, right? So what we do is periodically we have, uh, you know, we, we dedicate time for user research and discovery. And every quarter, we basically reassess our customer problem backlog. And these are big, hairy, you know, problems that we don't know the solution of. We don't exactly know why they're happening, uh, but we know that they are happening. And so uh, what we do is before we the next cycle starts, like teams who are already working in the type of category, and right now they're in thematic, in different thematic uh, topics, they sort of start picking from that backlog problems and they start like going through the customer validation. So... In other words, like it's pretty visible uh, across the whole company how uh, and when and who is working on which problem. And so the and, and fundamentally above that, then there is a level of you know, strategy where we know where we're going to focus on and why. And that trickles down all the way to the bottom. So we've talked about what makes a good hypothesis um, in terms of the actual validation of this hypothesis. How do you go about deciding how to validate or invalidate the assumptions that you've made? Yeah, so, so that's something that we have developed quite a rigorous process, uh, purely from experience. We, we started doing it and then, you know, things would break and, and we found a way that we have something which is specific enough as to guide, uh, you know, our teams in the process, but at the same time, it's generic enough that you can, you can adapt to it. Um, for short, we call it CUSP. Um, the first part is like the, the customer user journey. The second part is the user problem validation. There's a third part, which is um, around the solution validation. And finally, we prioritize based on, on what we find. I think it's extremely important to understand, and this is where we all start from, um, to understand the customer journey. And there's a lot of things that come with it. It's the touch points of the customer, the mood of the customer, their worldview about a problem. And at that point, we don't really even have a hypothesis, right? We, we just observe that something is happening and we try to understand it and we, and we start interviewing people. And at that point, we, we only do interviews. Pretty quickly, you start understanding both why people are doing the things they're doing um, and also like what is the opportunities and what are the, the problems. Um, uh, 
the head of design that I, I very often uh, run uh, interviews with nowadays, he specifically asks them to behave as if they're going to give a script to, to uh, an actor or an actress to, to impersonate them. And so we go in a lot of detail in that context, in, in minute detail of the past days, and we look at the past. So once we detect uh, opportunities, then we try to quantify them, right? So we, we send out surveys just to try to quantify the points uh, in that map that we think are interesting and that we can solve. So they're relevant to us, uh, they're within the realm of our product and our mission, and we think that they're interesting. So once we quantify that, then we move on to a uh, potential solution uh, tree. And just when we're starting to look at solutions, we also need to make sure, we have made sure at that point that the customers have a problem. They're clearly acknowledging that they have a problem and that they have tried to solve it. So it's quantified, it's known, and then we move on to, to solutions. And uh, in the solution part uh, is where the, the fun begins because, you know, the teams get together and they brainstorm with complete autonomy. And the only rule that remains is effectively, can you get something more than nicety from, from a customer, right? Because we're not looking for, oh, what a great idea, or absolutely, I would use it. But we're looking for some really tangible commitment. And I think that's been baked in a lot in the, you know, culture that we're building that instead of, you know, showcasing something and maybe even compare and contrast, we take it a, to the next level and we try to get commitment from our customers. What does that commitment look like? Do you measure from a quantitative approach or qualitative, or do you use a mix of both? We generally use mixed methods uh, and we can get back into that. Um, I think we're trying to basically, at, at that level, it's qualitative and at the same time, it's, uh, it's pretty clear cut. So what I mean by that is uh, we ask for commitments that are Boolean statements, yes or no, right? If you're, if you're in a B2B product in the past, for example, have been uh, working in B2B products, it's not uncommon to ask for a pre-sale, right? You're, you're doing a demo and the commitment then for the customer is like, you know, if I deliver this in a month, we can sign the contract today. Would you be up for that? And I think that's great. On a continuous product, you know, uh, development process and specifically in a consumer context, that might not always be the, the right way to do it. But you can ask for other things. So, for instance, uh, you know, last uh, couple of weeks, we've been testing something pretty exciting uh, for customers. We thought it was amazing. We were uh, very excited. And then we went to customers and we asked them that, you know, there's a limited seat of uh, alpha testers, which is true. And that, you know, in order to, to get in one of those, you need to spend three hours next week in any given day you want with us to go through the specific details of the product. And that is a big commitment, if you think about it, to find three hours within your day. And that is why we set the bar really high, because at that point, we started having some people go, oh, you know, I'll wait a little bit. That sounds great and whatnot. But we also had customers that basically were really happy to commit to that. And they were enthusiastic because they said that that would be, you know, actually making a difference into how they're uh, in their daily livelihoods and how they approach what they eat. So once you realize that, then you have some insight and you start making further hypotheses. So for instance, what was the reason that these customers have come to the product in the very beginning, what's the job to be done? Do they fit in a particular segment? And you start quantifying how does that particular user proposition resonate uh, to other segments? And there's a few ways you can do that. So when you're doing the user research um, to validate some of the hypotheses that you have, how do you decide or how do you kind of ensure that you are asking the right people or kind of testing with the right people? At which level of the product? Is it, are you asking for a particular feature or is it for a new initiative? Uh, is it for a big customer problem that we have observed um, by accident? I mean, I guess it would be at whatever level your hypothesis is at. And if it's specific to 
your general target market and persona or like, you know, specific personas, you know, maybe it's existing subscribers or churn subscribers. Yeah. So, um, so usually this kind of process starts, we we usually uh, employ this process for new product development. So when we're doing something completely new, um, where we, where we mix the methods, um, Otherwise, you know, you, we might have different types of, of variations around it. Um, it really depends is the answer. Uh, so for instance, sometimes, you know, the, you know, the product, that you, the product in question is something that's very pivotal. It's a core action. So we might want to change something that touches everyone in the product. So in which case uh, you, you mix and match. So right this morning, we're talking about a, you know, we're talking about a case where, you know, we want to test people who have not used the product, people that use the product in turn and people who are active users. And we want to compare and contrast because we believe that we're, what we're going to identify is different uh, use, sub-use cases or value propositions that uh, these users are finding by using it. So uh, it really depends. But it is a big part of how we structure the questions and how we recruit participants. So one of the things you're looking for from this, and it's something that uh, you, you shared with me earlier, Mark, is you want a solid and hard validation. So can you go into what that is and why it's so important to get that rather than something that's, not, well, I guess, squishy? I think, Randy, we're, uh, there's this, this, this line that I really like, which is um, if you're asking for compliments, you're going to get lies. And if you're, if you're pushing uh, in the bar, you're going to get a fake phone number. And what you really want to get out is the truth. And I think you get the truth with, with commitments and people speaking with their actions. And so that is what we mean by having a hard validation where we basically get the customers to work for it a little bit, uh, at least in the very beginning, just to make sure that what we're giving is, is really what they want and actually going to deliver to them the value that they, uh, that they need. So, I think there's a whole hierarchy of things that you can ask. And again, in some cases might be appropriate, in some cases might not. But, you know, first of all, uh, if somebody pays you, I think there's already appetite enough. So if you can basically get money in advance uh, or a commitment or a subscription or anything like this, this is great. Um, then you have time. I think time is, you know, uh, is very important to people and we safeguard it more and more. And then finally, we have social currency. Right, you have people advocating on your behalf and like introducing you to and sharing your message and, and so on and so forth. So, in that order, uh, these are some of the three most commonly used that we use in order to make sure that what we're getting and what we're building is you know hitting the target versus uh, you know people telling us that they like what we're building or you know they would use it in a hypothetical world. So, Mark, you mentioned you worked with other startups and scaleups. I'd be interested to know how much this method is used in other businesses and you know if you're introducing it to two businesses like how easy is it for businesses to adapt to this type of approach yeah that's a great question um i think it varies a lot uh and it varies a lot for a few reasons so the first one is that there needs to be an alignment from all the people that participate in the product and influence the product team Often, you know, the product team might understand the value of having a hypothesis-driven product development process, and other parts of the business might discount that value, um, assuming that, you know, we already know this, or, you know, uh, we have an entrepreneurial hunch, or, uh, you know, this is superfluous and we don't have the time. So I think being having an aligned view of the value of properly going through um, hypotheses with your business stakeholders is crucial. And... 
you know, if you don't have the time to do it right, when are you going to find the time to do it over, right? Because you will have to do it over. Um, it's a very nuanced problem. We need to understand the customer's context and we need to build around it. Otherwise, adoption is going to be low. So I think the first one is aligned incentives and understanding. The, the second issue, uh, which I think is you know, adjacent to the first one, is, is time and the, and the perception of what fast means. I'm a firm believer that you have to go slow to go fast. The attention to detail in the very beginning will propel you to move very extremely fast as you move along. And I think this is something that people who either don't have necessarily a traditional product management background or have had a lot of experience or industry experts, for example, tend to discount. And I think that's the, the second thing that uh, I find to be quite a, a nuanced point, but it, it really affects the startups and, and large organizations even more. And the third thing is, you know, a lot of times people tend to get excited by f- having validation or by finding excitement in the customer and they don't full uh, finish the process as it should be. So they'll find an insight or a customer will say something, they'll get overexcited and excitement is going to take over. Everybody's super excited. They just go on and build the thing, but they don't ask the full uh, extent of the questions, which is, you know, how big is that problem? How frequently is it? You know, would they pay for it? And more, and even more importantly, like, is this something that fits with our strategy? Is this something that's hard to imitate? Why are we building it? Why, why us? So alignment is definitely one. Um, not having the time and being rushed is definitely the second. And I think this, this overexcitement and confusion of like what really validation uh, is about, I think are the three common themes that I've seen uh, hindering really different types of companies at different stages from really executing perfectly in this. So Mark, we all know the Deming's quote, in God we trust, all others must bring data. And the problem is sometimes we bring the data and it's not what necessarily our boss expected or what we wanted, or maybe it's taking much longer to figure something out than we thought. What happens when it goes a bit wrong if it doesn't go as expected? How do you know when it's time to uh, whether when it's time to do more research or when it's time to just say, okay, it's a sunk cost, let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, so I think from, from the very beginning, when you start a process around a problem, what you really need is clarity. You need to have clarity and you don't need to focus on being right, but you need to focus on being clear. And I think this kind of goes back to like managing stakeholders and, and creating alignment, right? You see an opportunity, you see a problem hypothesis, and you understand why that might be pivotal for the product. If you really have this clarity, then you can communicate it you know, to, to your other stakeholders, to upward management, to your team, and to everybody. So you're all aligned. When the data comes back, there is that transparency. And I think if you started from that position of clarity, then um, you all should agree on whether the data that you have is sufficient or not. So what you're saying, Marcus, at the beginning, you're setting uh, out some research objectives for this. You're saying, uh, but what is, how will we know when this is validated at the beginning and you're getting that agreement up front? Is that, is that fair to say? Correct. So, so that's why you have hard validation statements. So what you're doing is you're doing a mixture of like quantifying the reach and quantifying the impact uh, early on. And if you don't see, uh, you know, the calculation of the two, the product of the two to be sufficient, then the data is out there in the open. And I think, you know, then becomes also a business decision as well. So um, we're recently developing a feature. We thought the reach is like 80%. We started talking to our users. We actually, turns out that a lot of our users are using different sources, different devices to get to the point of, um, you know, specifically finding a recipe. And the feature that we were looking to develop 
suddenly went down to 20%, right? And then when we went for hard commitments with our users uh, and we sub-segmented them, we saw that there was a particular category, a particular segment that was really deeply interested in that product. So whilst we did find validation, the actual business case was not big enough. And the disagreement was, there was no disagreement because we all saw the truth for what it was. We found validation, but it was small enough and therefore it was deprioritized, which is the final point of this framework that we're following, right? We're amassing all the data, we're finding out the truth in terms of like both the problem and the solution. And then we're looking at it and saying like, where's that going to go in terms of stack ranking it? Mark, this has been such an interesting conversation and we are running out of time, but I just have one more question for you. Um, so uh, for those that are kind of using hypotheses in their day to day, what's your top tip for anyone who's um, using hypotheses uh, in their work or wants to get started? Fall in love with the problem, not with the solution. Just focus on everything you're doing to be around a customer problem, not the solution, not the business metrics. And once you do that, no matter where this hypothesis goes, no matter what the outcome is, you're going to be one step closer to delivering great customer experience. Lovely. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's the quote of the episode for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>